on episode four of the Late Night History Podcast. I am joined by Rob Garnett, who appeared on episode two. We also welcome on the first One More Wave Team Rider, the name we attribute to our veteran surfers. She was a reservist assigned to SEAL Team 17, one of the two reserve SEAL teams. She is a trailblazer for women in special operations, having served as one of the first women in the Naval Special Warfare Cultural Support Teams. She completed three combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, supporting Navy SEALs, Army Special Forces ODAs, and Joint Special Operations Command, also known as JSOC, and she continues to serve in a special operations capacity in the reserves. Here is Episode 4 with Annie Ferguson. I guess, can you start off by, uh, like, introducing yourself, like, where you're from, where you grew up? Sure. Uh, my name's Annie Ferguson. I'm 37 years old. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I currently live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Cool. And can you talk a little bit about your childhood, like, um, yeah. your experience? Sure. Um, so, being raised in the Midwest, I think, was a fun lifestyle because it's very outdoorsy, simple, um, very affordable. A lot of people just love living there and they never leave. So um, I'm one of four kids, um, like single mom as a fourth grade. So she did all we could do. So I just kind of was raised very independently. I, I was in sports. I did a lot of things outdoors by myself. Um, I loved like outdoor summer camps. My grandparents, they owned property on a lake. So we grew up water skiing, wakeboarding, um, just a very tomboy lifestyle. And I think that led me all the way through, geez, middle school, high school, college, and actually still to this day, I consider myself that same little tomboy that just loves sports and being outdoors and camping and hiking. Um, yeah, so I came from a fairly strong female family. Um, my mom was one of the two oldest girls. Uh, grandma and all my aunts and uncles, their business, they own small businesses. Um, we've got coaches, we've got PE teachers, uh, just a lot of strong personalities. So I think I naturally took that on. And it didn't matter if you were a woman or a man in my family, you know, if you had leadership abilities, you had leadership abilities. And um, I think that's kind of helped me throughout life to not be, not be afraid to be like one of the guys or even still to this day, I'm in a very small female field where, you know, we only make up five to 10% of um, the population of where I work. So um, yeah, I think that just, I don't know. It's just a fun lifestyle to grow up and I got to do whatever I wanted because I kept good grades. I kept my nose clean. And so my mom didn't really care what I did. Um, but I chose a fairly 
educational path. I was a nerd in school. I was in silly clubs and I did my athletics to keep me busy and active and healthy. And then um, I went to college. I wanted to um, finish as quick as I could because I wanted to get into the real world. I wanted to work. So I went to University of Missouri, Columbia with my best friend and I majored in parks, recreation and tourism. I mean, how much more fun can you get than to go to college to be outside? So um, yeah, I was in like the forestry club. I was a lumberjack. I was in the parks and recreation club. So I got to go rock climbing and help little kids, you know, create fun run events and things like that. And then, um, yeah, senior year, I got to do an internship and uh, some internships came up and what caught my eye was you can go overseas with the Navy and be an MWR uh, recreation specialist. And I was like, wait, overseas? MWR, morale, welfare and recreation? Like this sounds like the perfect place for me to go. So boom, right there, I got um, accepted into an internship to Sicily. And I think life really just kind of started and launched from there. So that was your introduction to the Navy? Yeah, that was my introduction to the military. Like, I don't come from a military background. St. Louis is, I mean, we have like Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, but nobody I went to high school with joined the military. I remember taking the ASVAB, but it just wasn't even an idea. You know, it's in, in the Midwest, you kind of go to college or you join a trade. I don't know. We never had military friends or family. Um, my grandpas were both in the military, but it almost skipped too big of a generation to really even consider that path. And what made you want to join the military? Uh, after working in Sicily for six or seven months with the Navy, I got to really see what these families and sailors, and we were seeing Air Force um, coming through. It was great to see their quality of life and all these worldwide travels that they get to bring their families on. Like you get to be stationed somewhere for two to three years and your kids could essentially travel everywhere. There's DOD provided schools. It was just I don't know. It was so enlightening to me. And I thought, well, I'm physically fit. I would love to learn some kind of new career, um, especially if it's going to be free, you know, and I could possibly live this lifestyle to where I could move all over the world. And so I was like, why not? I think I could do this. <laughs> and, uh, and like before you like before going down like your uh, the beginning of your Navy path, can you describe like the history of the MW MWR? Yeah, so actually I contacted uh, my old boss, who is now the number two of MWR in Washington D.C. So he was able to give me some good information. Hold on, let me get my notes. So he kind of laughed when I asked him, like, "Hey James, can I get the history of MWR?" And he was like. <laughs> the history of Navy MWR, like, Annie, there's been sailors recreating since the beginning of the Navy, like, go back to the Great White Fleet, go back to the USS Constitution, like, 
the Navy was always making port calls and Liberty calls. And, you know, what they do in their off time, they played cards, they got boxing rings together on these ships. So he was like, they've always been recreating. It just wasn't, it wasn't titled, you know? Um, so he was saying about a hundred years ago. So we figured like 1920 is when Congress actually appropriated funds for recreation. So that was kind of when MWR became an entity. So now we have money to take these sailors when they go to a port call, now we can have them go, you know, on a bus trip somewhere, or we can embrace them into the culture and get them a tour guide. We can keep them occupied on ships with video game consoles and sports and recreation. So for about a hundred years, it's been an actual entity and it's gone from shipboard services to more of a full embrace of families as well as the service members to be able to recreate. And um, I mean, if anyone has ever been to any military base, they'll see an MWR, whether it's Army, Marines, um, Navy, we all have an MWR program. We can get tickets for, let's say, Disney World, or they can help book your travel. There's single sailor centers, there's movie theaters. So it's a really great department that all of the DOD has embraced. And I know personally, when I was just working as an MWR recreation specialist, how much value I saw for these sailors and their families' betterment um, of their time overseas and in the States. What were like yeah. some of the, oh, go ahead, Rob. No, I was gonna say, I bet it changed a lot, you know, instead of just the ship pulling in and everyone, you know, going to hit some booze and maybe fight with the Marines or fight with the Navy if you're a Marine or the locals, you know, uh, there was other stuff to do. Like, oh, I can actually go see some of the sites instead of just the bar that's right next to the pier. That's sure. pretty cool. I bet it really changed the way, you know, it, everyone approached, you know, time off, right? It wasn't just go, let's go booze it up and throw darts. It was like, hey, let's go see the local stuff or maybe I'm gonna go zip lining or scuba diving or just ride a bus and get a tour, you know, around Sicily. That's pretty cool. And were, th were there any like unique um, like things that you did in Sicily? Oh my gosh. So I think I was there for three days and they were like, hey, Annie, do you want to go snowboarding on Mount Etna, which is like an active volcano in Europe? And I was like, wait, yes, of course I do. They're like, all right, you're going to ride with the lead recreation specialist. You know, let's strap you up for a snowboard and you guys are going to go up to the volcano and here's your, here's your snowboarding pass. And I didn't know how to snowboard. So the lead guy was like, I'll teach you how to snowboard. And within my first three trips up to Mount Etna, here I am snowboarding down an active rocky volcano. And it's like, it's on the news halfway through my internship. My mom's like, uh, Mount Etna's erupting. I was like, oh yeah, I can see it from my backyard, mom. It's okay. She's like, wait, you just snowboarded on that. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's so cool. So we were doing a lot of snowboarding trips. Um, my boss was pretty cool. She was like, hey, if you plan a trip, Annie, you can sign up sailors, give them a price to pay, book their you know, flights and you guys go. So I did um, a trip to Malta. We made it very historical. Um, I mean, Malta was 
massively important in Sicily's history and coming from Africa. So there, I think there were like 10 of us that went to Malta. Um, I did a trip to a set of islands that's north of Sicily called the Lippery Islands. I mean, they let me run with it and I totally took advantage of it. We went and saw every castle or every set of ruins that you could possibly get to on the entire island of Sicily. It was fun. That's awesome. And one story that I kind of want to share is um, I wrote a story about the Baghdad Angler Club in School of Fly Fishing. So in 2005, there was this Navy, uh, Navy captain. He had like 35 years in the Navy. And uh, he like basically it was at uh, Alpha Palace. So in uh, Iraq and that like little lake there, he had uh, people donate like fly fishing equipment. And he would just teach like army soldiers or Marines, like how to fly fish in the middle of Iraq during like the heat of like battle, but like, obviously not, not like obviously separated, but I just thought that was super interesting. <laughs> but that's an important factor of life. You know, you work hard, you play hard. And I think at the beginning of Navy MWR, you know, these guys are at war day in and day out. So they needed an outlet. And we still see it now. I mean, I think we see it more than ever now in the last five or 10 years with all of these mental health pushes and therapeutic programs. We're learning like you guys worked so hard. Now you've got to balance it out and play a little bit. Totally. And can you talk about how you you like you graduated from uh, college and then how you got involved with the Navy? Yeah. So um, I actually met my then husband in Sicily. So we were going to get stationed in Florida. He was becoming a Navy diver. And then we knew that we were going to go to Hawaii. That was his next tour of duty. So um, we got married so I could get on his orders to go to Hawaii as accompanied. And um, we were out there for maybe six months. I was just living it up, you know, like hiking and everything. And I actually was laying on the beach, the same beach I would go to um, couple days a week and uh <laughs> these Hawaiians were just like hey white girl you want to learn how to surf and I was like I mean I would love to that's great so this like group of people that I kept seeing over and over again they invited me to surf and I got to surfing and um I realized okay I need a job so I started looking for jobs I thought MWR would be a shoe-in um but unfortunately they were hiring locals and they were hiring spouses. So our, I, I don't know, I couldn't get hired as a spouse. It was really strange. So I got some odds and end jobs. I was like driving a bus for a, a dolphin and whale company. But then I thought to myself, like, why am I not joining the Navy? This is right in front of me. Like my husband at the time was active duty. I was using MWR all the time. Um, I was renting surfboards and supboards from them. I was using them. So I was like, you know, why not? Um, so we talked about it. And that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to be a Navy reservist because it's part-time. Um, I can live, I can be stationed wherever I live. It wasn't the other way around. So it was kind of a safe bet that I would always be able to live where he was. And I started looking up rates. And Intel caught my eye and it was just, it was a very safe bet for me because I knew I was going to learn an entirely new profession. I was going to get a clearance out of it. Um, it was one of the few rates that had a bonus 
So I literally signed up and I waited my year for to be shipped off to boot camp. And in that year, I just hiked, surfed more. Um, I just really enjoyed the Hawaiian culture and I got out as much as I could. And then I went away. So it was boot camp, Intel A school and Intel C school. So I was gone for about nine months, but I never regretted the decision. And now I've been in almost 11 years and I don't regret it at all. And what year did you join? I joined in 2010. So I was like the old lady in boot camp. My, um, my nickname was Martha Stewart. I was so annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> I was married. I like knew how to sew and I was really good at shining shoes. So yeah, they called me Martha Stewart. And before uh, we talk about like your involvement with the uh, cultural support teams, uh, Rob, can you talk about like how that unit like came to be? Sure. Uh, you mean the, the Navy's? Yeah, the Navy. Gotcha. Uh, it just, it became, um, we talked about it a little bit earlier in a different uh, podcast, but it was because we were just having so much trouble in Afghanistan um, by us. I mean, like all of everybody, all the, everyone that was operating in, in Afghanistan was in a real tough time just because of the cultural differences between us and the local folks when we wanted to talk to uh, women or children uh, on targets. And so finally we realized, hey, we've, if we brought on some female soldiers and sailors, Marines, then we'd be able to engage at the whole population and be much more effective. And so that was the initial start was to, to be able to do that and be more effective on the battlefield. Um, and we can talk about more about what it kind of went into after that, but that was definitely the impetus was to make sure we could um, be more effective when we went on target to look for bad guys. And were you there for, to like establish that like initial training course? Right. I came right as the first one was starting. Uh, but yes, uh, definitely right around that time, for sure. I think Annie was in the second group. Uh, I can't remember. Is that right? Technically, I was third group. Third group. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, no, no. Uh, the, the very first group was um, mostly active duty folks that would just pulled that were already in NSW. Uh, and then from then on, we started um, using reservists more. Um, for a couple different reasons. One was really that we could, um, in a sense, like flip on the light switch when we wanted them. And then you could keep this, these, uh, the women for a whole deployment and kind of control where they would go, as opposed to active duty people who might get orders to other places and have to leave or have another job. We could bring in the folks specifically who we wanted and screen them much easier uh, as reservists and then keep them on for a year. Um, so they could go through training and deploy and then come back. And, you know, I'm sure Andy has talked about at length the, the pain of mobilizing and demobilizing and doing it over and over again all the time. But, uh, but yes, uh, we definitely did that for a couple of reasons. And uh, I think Annie will probably talk about it more too, like what it kind of evolved into. Yeah. Can you talk about your experience, Annie? Yeah. So I was part of FST three. Um, but even before that, I remember the announcement coming out of the FST program. And at that time I was an E4. Um, so it had said in the job description, you know, looking for maturity, age, you know, things like that. And it, it did mention rank, but I was like, screw it. I'm applying for this. This is my dream come true. So I applied for it. Um, and I didn't get in that cycle, which I would assume would have been FST two. Um, so I waited and I just kind of always hoped that that opportunity was going to come back around. And sure enough, I was on vacation in Germany and I got the email that said NSW female support team hiring. And I was like, Oh, here we go. 
I spent the next six months or six hours of vacation, like finishing my resume, getting it in. And at that time I was an E5, you know, I felt a little better than I was Intel. I was actually already part of SEAL Team 17 um, in their Intel unit. So I was like, okay, I've got that NSW background. So I applied and I got it. Um, and it was a pretty lengthy process. They told you right up front, you know, you were going to go do a three day assessment and that's really when they weaved us out. So I think my group, when I showed up, um, March or April of 13, I think there were probably 15 to 20 girls there. Um, the three day assessment happened. It was very physical, mostly physical, um, there were some leadership things you briefed. They just got your personalities, you know, over a three day course. And so by the end of it, there were six of us selected for it. And what and, were and like, enough, oh, God, uh, if I could real quick, Matt, so the, the way we would do it was we would go, okay, we're going to need to run another class. And so we would send out some message traffic, which is just an email, right? So that people could see, hey, we're looking for applicants. And we would probably get each time about a hundred applicants. Um, and from those hundred, it would take us to get to 20. So out of those hundred people that would apply, we'd get down to 20 that we'd actually want to bring to Coronado to, to interview and kind of go through a screening process. And so what Andy's talking about is when she showed up, she'd already made to the, uh, the smaller number, right? From that hundred down to, I think it was 20 to 15, we'd try to bring out. And then we'd start what Andy's talking about, which is just a three-day kind of assessment um, before then we'd go, oh yes, now you're going to actually get to come to the training. Does that sound like how it was for you, Annie? Yeah, it was so intimidating. I still remember that day, uh, getting in that elevator. And I think I was one of like five people in that elevator. And I looked around and I was like, oh wow, I am so not physically ready for this. I mean, these chicks looked like bodybuilders and one of them, you could tell that she like did triathlons. And I was like, oh man, here's my little, like, normal Midwest body. All right, here we go. I'm strong. I might not look it, but I'm strong. And yeah, I mean, they, we weaved it through and I think the six candidates that they chose at the end, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. There was no drama. We all got along. We all helped each other. We all had our strengths and our weaknesses. And you could tell it was a very calculated process from the CEU staff to choose the final, the final girls. And how did you like assess like the candidates, uh, Rob? And then can, Annie, can you talk about like some of like your experiences during that three day, like, mm -hmm. like like the training stuff you did? Yeah, of course. So there, I mean, there was definitely physical uh, attributes that we had to meet um, because larger SOCOM Special Operations Command had criteria for what they wanted you to be able to do. Because once you became part of the larger CST, uh, in NSW, you call them FST, but the larger SOCOM was called uh, CSTs. And as a CST, when you deployed, you could go wherever anyone needed females. So Annie could have been with, you know, NSW with SEAL platoon. She could have been with a SF ODA um, Special Forces guys. Um, she could have been with MARSOC or Ranger Battalion. So everyone kind of needed that same base. So there was a, a physical piece to it but then our screening was more we wanted mature folks and so that was kind of the beauty of being able to use reservists because reservists are always going to be a bit older than someone of the same rank that's in the service right so um annie already had a bunch of life experience right as an e4 or an e5 that someone that you wouldn't find that normally you wouldn't find that kind of experience 
in a similar rank or time in the service. So that was a big part. And just talking to people, um, a big thing for us was to make sure there wasn't someone that had an ax to grind. There was many people that showed up that um, they thought it was going to be the, the first female Navy SEAL training. Uh, and they were hoping when they were done, they were going to become SEALs. And, and so there was a little bit of dismay, I think, at that, that that wasn't the case. That, hey, we're going to be there. We're all going to be part of this team that's just going to be supporting whoever it is. It might even, it probably won't be NSW because NSW is much smaller than the other groups out there. And so it's really just us feeling them out and seeing which, which folks are going to be able to um, not be a burden to everyone else. And, and, and they didn't want that either. They wanted to be treated just like everybody else. And so making sure that everyone could just fit in and be seamless and just be like, oh, there's another person in a camouflage uniform and really not know if it's a man or woman. That was kind of our intent the whole time. Um, but yeah, it was really just getting to talk to everybody and having those small groups really made it easier for us to kind of just chat everybody up and kind of as best we could get to know them. Cool. And Annie, can you talk about uh, your experience going through something like that? Yeah. Well, and to note another thing I noticed, and I don't know if it happened accidentally or not, but it was actually, it ran true with the army CSTs, but the average MOSs or rates that ended up being picked were a lot of medical personnel. So we had a lot of corpsmen, um, military police on the army side and the Navy side and Intel. It seemed like those were the three most apparent ranks that got chose or rates that got chose. And it ended up working very well, whether that was intentional on the staff's, you know, mind or not, it worked because it gave those three positions already a level of knowledge that they were offering to their teams. You either already knew how to search and seize, or you could give a good Intel brief or you, you were a civilian nurse back home. So they were just three very valuable jobs that like he said, reservists, you know, not every reservist works their military job they do in their civilian job. But for the most part, people do kind of have the same job as a reservist that they do have in their civilian life. Um, and then you've got me who I was just a school bus driver and a dolphin tour guide, you know, but, but it is true. Cumulatively, I think reservists have a lot to bring to the table. And so for me, I mean, that assessment was physically brutal. We were just out on this field for hours a day, just getting beat down, you know, rolling around in sand. We were called sugar cookies. I had never heard that term before. It made me laugh in my brain because God forbid you laugh out loud, you know, like, oh, geez, then you got to do 50 more push-ups. So it was a lot of physical. Uh, we did have the, the Coronado Bay right there. So they dabbled in a little bit of swimming, um, which is not a strong suit of mine. So that was always a challenging day, knowing that we were either going to go to the pool or go to the bay that day. Um, but you just fake it till you make it, you know, confidence helped you get through it. And it did help me get through it. Uh, we were doing beach runs and then we had like a little mini buds course. So it was a lot of psychological games. Um, you know, who can apply the best war paint after you've been taught for five minutes how to do it. So it was just taking direction, attention to detail. It's all those things that were taught throughout our entire Navy career at boot camp. It's all attention to detail. Um, how to properly pack a bag, you know, the staff would tell you exactly how they wanted it. And if it wasn't exact, you got, you got punished physically. So it was a really effective way to weave out 
20 girls down to six. Um, but oh man, I remember being sopping wet in my uniform, going in and out of the ocean, rolling around in sand. And by the end of it, I could barely walk because my inner thighs were so chafed. It, it was, you know, it took days to heal after that three-day assessment. But man, that day that they pulled you in and told you you were selected, it, you, it didn't matter. All those bruises and bumps and scars didn't matter anymore. We knew that we were on board for the next year of our life to be just incredible. And what's like the pipeline after that? Like you, you graduate that like little assessment and then yeah. what do you do? <laughs> so they send you home for like a week or two and you get your next set of orders. And it was six months of training. So actually I wrote it down. I found the, I found the whiteboard that they had, um, I had a photo of it. So let's see, we did radio comms, briefing, land navigation, SEER school. We took a AFPAC cultural course. We did a two week tactical questioning, tactical debrief and sensitive site exploitation course out in Virginia Beach. We did small arms, heavy weapons, movement. Um, we did a defensive like off-road driving course out in Nevada, which highlight of that my sounds life. Awesome. <laughs> oh my God, you're like driving dune buggies through the dunes of Nevada. Like, okay, please. Like I felt like I was in a movie. Um, we did a TCCC medical course, which is your tactical casual combat care. Um, and then the last one I had was we were learning how to do KLEs, which is key leader engagements. So they were getting you ready. Oh, and on top of that, it was five to six days of physical training. Um, we had an SO1 who was basically our, our trainer for every day of the week. So it was a mix of physical um, cultural training, obviously to be a fantastic soldier training. Um, it was very well-rounded. And since you had your six girls, everyone knew what strong point they had, what weak point they had. So one girl would naturally step up to maybe lead, um, her group in that course of instruction. But we had, you know, two senior chief seals, we had an SO1, we had a lieutenant, and then we had the cultural engagement staff. So we had linguists helping us, we had a corpsman. Um, and then you have support staff from over at the Bud School. So you were being trained by the people you were about to go deploy with. And I think that's what made it very real to us because if those guys didn't think that we were worthy to pass that course, how are we gonna how are we gonna do that in front of these guys that we've never met before in Afghanistan? So it was a lot of pressure, but it was the necessary pressure. And can you talk about um, like some of your deployments and your experience as a CST? Yeah, so um, we get on a plane to Afghanistan and we've never met the team that we deployed with. So we're like sitting on a C-17 and it takes about two hours for the first guy to come up to me and they're like, uh, who are you guys? We are like, oh, well, we're your CSTs. And they're like, huh, what's a CST? And they're like, what? They don't even know what CSTs are. Like, oh shoot, okay, here we go. Here goes that uphill battle that, you know, our instructors told us about. 
So we like, you know, onesie twosie, you brief what you're there for. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. We'll uh, see you in country. And so you get off the plane and we, our whole group got shuttled off to Bagram Air Force Base right off the bat because we needed to go meet the Army CSTs. So they had, we brought five, we brought six girls. The Army, I think that cycle, we were on CST six. They probably had 20 to 30. So we went with them um, under their command, CJSODIF, so Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. Um, and we all sat there for about two days and they kind of divvied us up. They told us exactly which of our partners were gonna go where. Um, so my partner and I, I had an MA1 who had actually done an Afghan FST deployment right before me. So I was like, okay, cool. I, you know, I've got the best experience possible. So we got stationed with um, a first group ODA. So right off the bat, once again, it was like, oh wait, I've been training to go be attached to a SEAL team. All right, here we go. We're going with Green Berets. Like, I didn't even know Army ranks, anything like that. So, um, yeah, they flew us out to Ghazni and life started, you know. So I had a six-month appointment. Um, they were fantastic right off the bat. They had, they had worked with CSTs in the past. Um, their staff was very supportive of us. They let us come right in and give the ODA basically a um, capabilities brief, what we are here to offer. Um, so I was Intel, she was um, military police and they were just so open to using us and whatever we wanted to do, they supported it. So I think the very first three days I was there, um, we had a helicopter crash right outside of Ghazni and our team got called to be the QRF. And I'm thinking to myself, oh gosh, I'm watching this on CNN in our jock thinking like, oh God, my family knows I'm in Ghazni. They probably think I'm on this helicopter crash. Like, oh, here we go. Um, so yeah, we got to be QRF for that. They let me work with the Afghan Women's Election Committee. So in 2013, they were doing Afghan elections. So I got to do that. Um, Bob Gosney had actually just had a really bad VBID um, accident or attack that went off a few months before us there. So they were a little hesitant to get off base. Um, so we didn't get out too much, but I learned a lot with them. You know, they trained me how to properly be in a convoy and how to use certain weapons that I hadn't gotten to use in our pre-assess, in our assessment training. So they were great. And then, um, about two months later, I got attached to a team out in Kandahar. So that was where I got really excited because my whole, you know, you hear about Kandahar, Afghanistan, like, oh, shoot, we're going into the thick of it. So um, her and I got to go to Maywand, Kandahar, which was right on the border of the Argandab River Valley. Um, and there we were attached to a seventh group team who once again had worked with CSTs in the past. They had good and bad experience with CSTs, but they loved the fact that I was Intel. I side saddled that Fox for the entire time I was there. I was coming up with Intel briefs. I was giving Intel briefs. They would say, all right, which one of you two want to go out on this gaff or half, which is ground assault force or helo assault force. And, um, gosh, they just used us. And it was, 
it felt amazing because here we are in the province where the Taliban started and thrives. And, you know, we're getting IDF'd every couple of days. We had a couple mass casualties. So it was that baptism by fire type of learning that I love to love to learn by. Um, we were out doing KLEs and we were out at the women's center almost daily. Like if we put an ops plan together, they approved it. And they said, how many guys do you need to go with you? So we were doing med caps, uh, women's center. I was still doing a little bit of elections work. We were doing the humanitarian aid, which is all part of the village stability operations piece of the hearts and minds. Um, but yeah, I felt like, oh, this is, this is what I was supposed to do as a CST. And so were I, the, oh, sorry to cut you off, but uh, uh, were there like, um, like partner forces and what, were, what was like the experience with them and like how they would see like a American woman in uh, uniform? Yeah. Okay. So let me go back. So the CST program had two branches. You were either going to be a VSO CST, which is Village Stability Operations, or you were going to be a DA CST, which is Direct Action. Those DA CSTs knew from the get-go of their training that they were going to go be with the Rangers. So the NSW program really trained us well because we could almost be a blend of a VSO and a DA operator. So for me, working with the Green Berets was always village stability. So with the village stability operations um, umbrella, SOCOM and USASOC, their end goal was to allow, to train the local population at the village level, basically enough to govern and police themselves, whether it be their women, their men, just to fight against, you know, the Taliban and become part of the government. So as a CST, as a female, my role was to meet the females in the village and to meet the district governors and talk to them about the importance of having females on their police force. So luckily in Maywand, we had AUP, which is Afghan Uniform Police, and we had ALP, which is Afghan local police. And so a couple times a week, we would go out and we would meet with these women. And at first we had a pretty good syllabus of what we wanted to train them. Um, we trained them tax, you know, shooting tactics. We trained them how to search better, how to question. And they were really receptive to it. They loved it. They were kind of silly and, you know, they didn't ever have that much responsibility put on them because they were older Afghan women in a village, a little overweight. You know, they were, they were like, they kind of reminded me of like, if my mom was told she's got to go be an Afghan police for her village. <laughs> so it was, you just had to, that's when you had to step back and you had to say, okay, yes, I'm a soldier, but I'm a woman. So let's approach this with a softer side. Let's, have a little fun with these women. Let's culturally adapt to these women. I mean, one night we went home and we dyed our hair with henna because the next day these women got a kick out of it. They were like, oh my gosh, you guys are, you guys are like embracing the Afghan culture. And so we would train them in a sense 
to get through to them and to make them want to be a policewoman. And they ended up being awesome. They were out stationed by themselves out at certain posts along um, the main highway one. And they'd come back the next day and they would tell us how confident they felt. And by the end of it, they had uniforms. I mean, we were telling the, the chief of police and the governor, like, guys, these, these women need uniforms. They need to look like the male police. This isn't fair. They can't just show up in their, you know, traditional garb. So by the end, we got them boots and they were in like a nice gray, almost like a gray hijab. And they, you know, you're giving these women a sense of power. It's the same thing when the guys go over to train partner forces, you're giving them a sense of pride and power. And so that was fun. And then it was also just as fun to train the men. The men got a kick out of seeing two women show up to these police stations. And they were like, what? They were real giddy. They were totally men, you know, like a man is the same all across the world. And it was funny because part of the CST training that we received, I think it was like day one or two, they said, girls, start growing out your hair. You need to look like a woman in a man's uniform because any girl who's in the military knows what it feels like to put men's uniform pants on. Like there's nothing feminine about it. So we grew our hair out. We all had these long braids. We would wear a colored scarf. So when you'd walk in to go train these guys, it, it was a male reaction. And of course they're gonna listen and perform well for women that are telling them to do something. So it was a very powerful um, month. And then it actually turned into more deployments that I got to use that power as a female on male um, host nations. It was very successful. And Rob, can you talk about your experience going from like training like women like Annie and then later deploying and like what you saw? Oh, sure. I had already deployed with, um, with women before. Um, there was, we were already kind of doing it. Just we, we would know, like Annie's talking about, we, the only females in country really were uh, military police. And so we'd go to the army and grab, Hey, we, we're going to, we know we're going to this big village and we'd grab, you know, two or three female soldiers and take them with us. Um, so we already kind of knew um, the value of that. Um, and so it was, it was fun to, to do it when we got back to the States. But um, what Annie's talking about earlier, just to kind of go back, we are super um, selective on jobs that they already had. Um, like if they're already a cop or they're already an Intel person, or they're already had some skills because we knew from our own experience that if you're in a special group, if you're, what well, doesn't matter what force, army, air force, Navy, it's going to be super tight knit. So the more you have to offer to the team, the more value you're going to be. If, if you're only, um, value is um that you're a female and all the guys are male you you won't be as useful but if you're also an intel person or you also already know how to be a police officer and teach people how to shoot or any other uh, litany of jobs that are available in the service um that made it much better for for people to go oh okay because we hate new things right so if these people show up and they don't have a bunch to offer um it's easy to say no but when there's so much you know like someone like Annie that already has a whole bunch of skills and life and um, life experience that made it so much better. So that was definitely based on our previous experience with um, what we used to call enablers, bringing people that weren't 
operators like a seal or a green beret or a ranger we all of us didn't want to bring extra people because you didn't know how they'd react when you're out in the field and so that's why the training was difficult too is to kind of prepare them for being able to mix in with everybody seamlessly um, so my experience is always good i i um, never had a problem i always enjoyed it it was always better the more the merrier and uh, i always thought um and so it was it was easy for me to kind of move in and do this because i already had had a bunch of buddies that had deployed with NSW that were uh, that were females, um, so it, it really wasn't a big deal. Um, uh, women did amazing things, the same as men downrange. It was never any different. I had this really funny uh, experience. I remember being in in Baghdad, and I was it was early on, and I was out at one of the gates, and the gate was called Assassin's Gate, um, and we were standing there, and I was waiting to bring in some Iraqi locals, and I can't remember what it was, and I remember being in civilian clothes probably smoking a cigarette with a guard or something or waiting. And all of a sudden the car starts kind of weaving its way towards the gate. It's not slowing down. And then all of a sudden the soldier next to me just starts firing at the car. So the three of us just, we shoot up the car, right. And um, comes to a stop and it was, a, someone was trying to run the gate. And I looked over to kind of say, Hey, thanks. Good looking out. And it was, it was not a dude. It was an air force um, police person that had engaged a person killed the guy and saved the day. We went over to the truck and in the back was full of like one, five, five rounds, which are artillery rounds. And they were trying to blow us up. Uh, and she had totally saved the day. And so it wasn't like I, I saw a ponytail and I was like, Oh, I need to engage. Cause she's not going to be able to, there was no, I, you know, no thought of that. So I, I honestly never had a, a second thought about a male or female being downrange with us. Wow. And, uh, Annie, you kind of mentioned it like, um, like you would dye your hair along the Afghan women, but can you also talk about like uh, sharing meals? So like some of like unique, unique experience, like with the food aspect. In yeah. So I love food. So for me to go and just be wined and dine, well, minus the wine, but to be dined over there. Um, oh my gosh, I was in heaven. So each CST team got their own female interpreter. Um, so right off the bat, we had a local, you know, not necessarily local Afghanistan, but ours was a Pakistani Turk. So right there, we're getting that daily cultural feed. She's, she's teaching us Pashtun, Urdu, whatever language um, in that area that we were working. She was teaching us about the culture, hand, sim like hand signals, and she was also a fantastic cook. So our our guys, our local Terps would go out into town and they would go get local food from the grocer and they'd bring it back. So it would be her and maybe like two or three of the male interpreters. And they would be in there with their pressure cookers, cooking goat, cooking lamb, the best rice, the Kabuli rice I've ever eaten in my life. Um, I think I was eating a naan that's like 18 inches in diameter daily, if not two to three of those a day. Like how I didn't gain weight, I don't know. But the food over there, which is something I didn't realize until someone said it, it's all organic. You know, the, we go here and we specifically search out organic food, but everything over there is organic. Because I remember biting into some of the fruit that these district police officers and the, you know, the chief of police would offer you because they always offer you food. I remember biting into my first apple over there and thinking like, why does this taste different than any other apple I've ever eaten in my life? And I was like, oh, this is the best apple I've ever eaten in my life. So then like 
you know, a few days down the road, I'm like, oh my God, this is the best orange I've ever eaten in my life. Eggplant, cucumbers, raisins, like they have raisins growing out of their eyeballs and they are fantastic. And so everything around the Pashtun culture is hospitality, food, which is, which is true around most of the world. If you've done some traveling, food is the heart of a family in an organization and it brings people together. And over there, you know, you're sitting on a blanket on pillows. Like it's a very intimate thing that you do before you even start a meeting is you eat. And so we're eating these fantastic meals. They hear, oh, the Americans are coming to the, to the district um, headquarters today. And they would have these huge meals. And to them, it's a, it's a compliment if you take another serving. So of course I would eat the whole first serving. And I don't think they expected me as like a small female to like take them up on another cup and a half of rice. But I was like, yeah, give me it. And I would finish it smiling. The tea was so good. They ended up teaching me how to be like a milk tea, the milk tea lady. And I just ate my heart out there. And you just, the KLEs were more successful over food and the bonds were greater when you got to eat food. I remember sitting next to several district um, governors and one of the provincial governors because A, they thought it was so cool that they had a woman soldier in their KLE. So they they have you sit right next to them and they kind of flirted with you. And then it was just like, whatever she wants, give her more food. This gorgeous plate of food, the freshest vegetables, the most delicious meats, um, fresh naan. And it was cool because it wasn't even just the district and provincial leaders doing that. It was also the homes we were going to. We would go do rounds in the village right outside of our base in Maywan. And you knocked on the door and these women would shuffle you in with their kids and you were instantly greeted with tea. Um, for them, sugar was a sign of wealth. So they'd end up putting like tons of tablespoons of sugar and you're like, oh no, that's too much. But you had to just accept like, oh my gosh, they think that we're that special and we are making them feel that special that we're listening to them and what they have to offer us intel wise that they would just hand over foot offer you things. I had little girls doing my makeup. You know, it was, you had to get to that cultural level to affect the hearts and minds for them to even listen to you. And food was such a big part of that culture. And not to put you on the spot, uh, Rob, but do you have like a experience with food or something like that? Uh, not, not a specific meal, but it's definitely takes a bit to get used to eating like in that type of a environment just because you go, okay, I'm going to plan to meet this person or these people at three in the afternoon. Well, you get there and you think you're going to get down to business. That's not the way it works. Um, you're going to chat for 20 minutes plus probably first before any business happens. Uh, and so, you know, you might have to have a whole pot of tea or a meal like Annie's talking about, or wait till things get passed around. Uh, you're not rushing that. So that is very difficult, I think, for Westerners when you first get exposed to that, because you're like, no, no, we're going to be there at three. I want to talk about the bad guys that are up on the hill that shot at the fob yesterday. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do you want another 
you know, scoop of sugar. You're like, (gasps) (laughs) yes, I would. Thank you. I would like some more sugar. Uh, And so that takes a minute to get used to. But yeah, just that the whole um, process of everyone kind of taking you in and getting to trust you. And if you don't eat or drink, they're not going to talk to you. If you kind of push it away and you're like, no, that might be dirty or there's probably COVID on that uh, teacup you handed me, you're not, no one's going to pay any attention to you. They're not even going to look at you. Um, And you have to kind of give up a little bit too. You have to take off your helmet probably, right? You're out in bad guy land. Now you're taking off your helmet. Sometimes you take off your body armor. Now you're just there and you're stuffed, you know, and you're showing um, the people you're eating with it. Like, Hey, I'm in danger too. Just like you let's, let's talk. Let's, you know, I'm vulnerable too. Uh, And so that takes a little bit to get used to. I think you're used to being kitted up and you got your gun on your hand. Well, you really can't do that and talk to somebody. They're not going to really take you serious. So um, that experience takes a little bit to get used to. So it's really fun to see when people kind of thrive in that situation. It's fascinating. And um, Annie, when you, uh, when you return from Afghanistan, can you talk about your experience as a like reservist and what, why that's uh, difficult? Yeah. So it's a part that I think I definitely bonded with all of my girls with. Um, We didn't even all fly home together. We were on two different chocks, which is two different airplanes back to the United States. And um, I remember getting on the plane it wasn't even our SEAL team. Uh, I was just kind of put onto an airplane that was headed back home to the States. And I remember landing and you're in civilian clothes. Your final leg was on a commercial airline from Germany. So, you know, you're sitting on this commercial airliner next to people who have no idea where the hell you've been for the last six months. And you're just smiling and you're ready to get home and You might have a friend or two at the airport. And I think we showed up at like 11 PM and it was literally like, I went home, I got in a car and I woke up the next day and boom, I was supposed to be a civilian again. You know, my, my own unit didn't even contact me to tell me, welcome home. My reserve, you know, like no one even acknowledged what you just did. We, We hadn't even been um, presented with our awards in country because my partner and I had worked for three different groups. So I got a combat action ribbon with one of my seventh group teams. But other than that, I didn't get my over encompassing award. Um, You know, like I came home and the only person I could share my entire last six months with was my partner. So there's one person in the world who I could share my experiences with. But as a reservist, you live all over the United States. We didn't live in the same town. I didn't live in the same town as any of my six girls. So you come home and it's instantly, you're almost forgotten. And you're just told to get back to work the next day. Um, it was really really sad. I got really angry with, um, the Navy reserve there, like watching that happen and just seeing no emails come in, no, no yellow ribbon programs offered, no, no help, you know, getting to the VA or do you have any medical issues? Like, are you okay? No one said any of that. And so I felt really disappointed, um, in the process of demoving. And it's sometimes those things you don't realize um, 
until further down the road, how abandoned you were. And it was kind of heartbreaking for me because my last month in Afghanistan, I had already agreed to my SEAL Team 17 unit that I would now deploy again to Iraq. So I knew coming home, I had less than 90 days on US soil before I was about to get up and do this all again. And so I, I was like, wait, I'm about to deploy for the same people that left me high and dry right now. Did I make a bad decision? Um, is this normal? Is this what everybody does? Is this, is this how all the guys that talk about they're on their 10th, 11th deployment? Is this how they feel? But I think active duty, you're protected more. You're going back to your home unit. You're going back to a town, your family, and you're going to deploy again with those same people. Um, you're employed for God's sakes. Like I was a reservist who gave up my job for this year and I come home and I'm unemployed and I have a 90 day gap till I'm back on military orders. So I went to my unit and I said, Hey, can you put me on orders for three months? They wouldn't, they acted like it was the hardest thing in the world to find a little bit of money to employ a Navy reservist who just came home from a combat deployment. Who's about to go on another one. So it was, um, it was pretty heartbreaking for those three months. Um, my marriage didn't work out. So I was dealing with a divorce. I was being left alone. Um, I was now struggling with the thought of go redeploying to another one. It was a lot of things that I didn't even have time to unwind or really face. It just kind of all happened. And then, um, yeah, I deployed to Iraq with, I knew who I was going with this time. So I was going with my SEAL team. I deployed with them. I was on the airplane with them. And you just get thrown to the fire, but it was, I quickly realized, oh, this is, this is what I'm living for now. Like, this is fun. This is my life. This is exciting. And I'm doing things that most people will never get to do. So I kind of forgot about the three months of life that just screwed me over because I was so excited to be doing this again. Then you went, so you went to Iraq for your second deployment? Yeah, so I went to Iraq. Um, reservists have nine-month deployments. So I went and did six months. Uh, we were the first SEAL team back in Baghdad um, since, you know, the actual Iraq invasion. Um, ISIS had kicked off, so they wanted us there. Uh, it wasn't even public knowledge that the SEALs were there yet. Um, so I went there, ground running. I was the intel person um, with a couple other guys in our jock. I was literally briefing the commander every day for his daily update brief. Um, it was really cool because it was different than my CST deployment because I was actually getting to do 100% intel. But what was so cool was the team, the team was more invested. I felt like a family member to these guys. I was one of two females on the entire Baghdad base. So they asked me what I just did. And I was able to tell them and teach them about the CST program. And they were like, wait, what? You did that? Can we use you as a role player? Can we take you out and use you as a CST? Like, can we practice with you? And so the little bit of off time I had, I jumped at it. And I, I carried on that CST job title that I hope to carry on in my military life forever. You know, yes, I'm Intel first, but I'm a CST forever. So 
Um, it was really a great experience, a great bond. It was very, since it was so new, since we were just kind of building up that base and we were, we were literally opening, reopening bases over that six month appointment. Um, they trusted me. I earned their trust. It's, it's a part that a female has to, it's a big challenge that we're given to prove ourselves without being cocky or um, overly confident. You just got to be one of the guys. And that's how it worked. And it was fantastic. Great deployment. And then um, it was cool because after six months, I was going crazy. So I asked my unit, I said, hey, is there any way I can come somewhere else other than Iraq? And they're like, yeah, come join us in the UAE for your last three months. So I like, they gave me a week long vacation in Qatar at the Air Force Base. And then I went to UAE, right? (laughs) There was alcohol, there were people holding hands. It was so strange. I was in another world once again, but I got to go to the UAE. They got to really, they asked me, Annie, you can do whatever you want. So I joined the Intel group. I was putting out a daily and I said, hey, can I, can I delve into some partner force stuff with women? You're like, Annie, you do whatever you want. So I went and talked to the UAE special forces um, commander and I was like, hey, do you have women? And he was like, we have females that are on our PSD. So they're, you know, like, um, like a personnel security detachment. So can I meet them? I got to go meet them. You know, we did some weapons training. I brought up to my command, hey, can I go down to Kuwait and see if they want to build like a small female engagement program? Because it was cool at that exact time that I was in the UAE, Rob's fourth group of FSTs uh, were doing some female training in Bahrain. So they passed me their syllabus that they were using. And I was going to try and see if Kuwait wanted to do something like that. And I met with a couple army ladies. They were all about it. Unfortunately, it never came into fruition. But, you know, that CST role got you in a lot of doors if you were persistent and wanted to work with partner nations. And it wasn't even always females I got to work with. I got to still be a female working with male partner nations. And they loved it. And then you returned from Iraq. Oh, no, the UAE. And then... And then where you come home and that same, that same reservist disappointment hit again, you know, like you get off the plane in your civilian clothes and here you are once again, unemployed. So this time I was not going to deploy again. So I thought, um, so I was like, all right, Annie, you need a civilian job. You need a big girl job. So I accepted a job out in Charlottesville, Virginia, working for the army. Um, I was going to be a targeting analyst. So I went out, I moved from San Diego out to Charlottesville. And um, part of that pipeline for that job was that you were gonna have to deploy. So luckily I got to spend about a year in the States. Um, I was hiking in the Shenandoahs every weekend. Like I was, I was starting to unwind myself from my two deployments, knowing that I was about to deploy again. So I got deployed with JSOC, um, which is U.S. SOCOM's like top tier. And I deployed to Afghanistan and I was a targeting analyst for AQIS and Al-Qaeda. So it was 
I think a little over my head. I, I don't, I don't think I was quite ready mentally um, to go on that deployment with as high paced as it was, because it's a little different than deploying with a SEAL team where you're part of a family. As a contractor, you are a one man show. Like there's no one to lean on, it's just you. So you either sink or you swim and I'm not a type of person who's gonna sink. So I went in and I mean, I was literally keeping my head above water for about the first four months of my seven month appointment because it's just that challenging of a job. You're in this jock for 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and you're doing important work, you know, like you're dealing with numbers in people's lives. And so a couple months in, I mean, I was starting to really feel my brain like almost crash. I was like mixing up numbers. I was almost like dyslexic with my wording um, because I was probably just so tired and my brain was probably so injured. Um, but I pushed through, I did a fantastic job on that deployment. I was kind of the mom of the jock, like once again, not many women. So I just naturally took on that mom role, which was the nice, like the play hard, you know, I, I worked hard, but then I got to be the one who got care packages from my family and pass them out to the guys. I got to decorate for holidays. Um, but that's when I thought back to an organization that Rob had told me about a year prior, it was called Warrior Expeditions. And so I looked into it because I knew that I was, uh, I knew that I was going to need something um, at the end of this deployment, a break, I guess, of some sorts. Like I definitely couldn't deploy. I didn't want to deploy again. Um, honestly, I didn't even know if I wanted to like go back to work or go back to the States at that point. So I looked into warrior expeditions, which is something Rob had told me about. He's like, Annie, you like the outdoors. And, uh, starting to retire, put my life together. And I came across this organization and I, I think you dig it. And so I looked it up, I applied and I got the phone call like three weeks before I left home on that deployment. And so it was so nice to think like, oh my gosh, I'm leaving Afghanistan, third combat tour back to back. And I'm going to go home and on July 7th, I am quitting my job and I am going to paddle my ass down the Mississippi river. Like no one is stopping me. You're not going to keep me employed. Like I am leaving. I am getting out of the Intel field for temporarily and I'm just taking a break. So that's what got me into warrior expeditions. And can you talk about your experience going down the Mississippi river? Yeah. So, um, Warrior Expeditions first started, I think it came about in like 2013, and it was just trails. So he was doing the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the PCT. And then he eventually added the paddle down the Mississippi and the biking across the country. So I thought, oh, I want to do the PCT. That is, that's what I want to do. I loved California. I love hiking. Let's do this. So I thought, all right, six months. Um, unfortunately the dates came out and it didn't work cause I was going to go to vacation. So he was like, how about you do the Mississippi? I said, that's perfect. I grew up in St. Louis. The Mississippi was my backyard. Let's do it. So, um, I got myself to Minnesota. You get your gear. They give you, you know, a brief of how to use all the equipment and you get familiar with your boat. 
you get familiar with, you know, the clothing you're about to wear, the food you're about to eat. Um, my whole life was going to live in this 13 foot solo canoe. And we launched, I had calculated it was going to take me about 90 days. Um, just with variations of the river was pretty low that year. Um, and I had a pace in my mind that I thought I wanted to keep up. I didn't actually know how long it was going to take. So, um, I launched with two other female combat veterans. Uh, they were both Air Force. I had a ComCam girl, which was really cool because she was documenting our whole trip. And then we had a, we had a Marine with us, but um, over the course of time, he dropped out and then so did one of the Air Force girls. So for 91 days, it ended up being me and the ComCam. Um, and it was, it was like the highs and the lows of my life. Um, I was in a canoe by myself paddling for eight to 11 hours a day, every day by myself. Um, I distanced myself from the group very early on because I knew I wanted a therapeutic outcome of this. I knew I needed to talk to myself, to journal, to see things outwardly and inward. And I think for me, I needed to be on the river facing every obstacle and challenge by myself but knowing at the end of the night i would meet up with this crew you know and that's where that safety and that small team dynamic still reign true like okay i'm with my i'm with my combat veterans like i'm i'm safe when i sleep because i'm with these girls um so i mean you're going through 10 states you're going through cultures you're going through people just different accents and you're stopping at VFWs and American legions on the way people are rooting you on. They're yelling at you from the side of the Mississippi. What are you doing? And you're like, I'm paddling the whole Mississippi. And they're like, are you crazy? You're like, yeah, I, I am kind of, I'm kind of crazy. Um, so every day it was like, it, you experienced all these different emotions of being on the river, but you were also experiencing emotions of facing the fact that you are right now transitioning your life from military deployment, fast paced lifestyle to a civilian lifestyle. Um, so yeah, it just gave you a lot of time to think. And, and that's the goal of these long-term outdoor expeditions is you know, you're scientifically proven to be more creative and you think more when you're out in nature by yourself, um, enveloped in, in everything around you. And so, yes, I had like a fun social aspect to it because I did have the culture and the people that I was meeting along the way, but I'm a social person. And it's the same as why I enjoyed Afghanistan so much was because I got to experience their culture and you know, that social aspect. So that trip was really fantastic for me healing wise and talking to those two girls, you know, they had been out for several years. So they gave me um, advice on the VA. There, there's programs that the VA offers you for extended outdoor recreation um, money, basically funding. Um, we talked about everything like the value of getting a dog. I had never thought about getting a dog. I, I lived this very gypsy lifestyle my whole life. We moved, 
even when I was married, we were moving every two to three years. So settling was never a concept for me. Um, so you just really, I soaked in everything these girls had to teach me and every VFW post we'd stop at, I would take something away from those guys who were veterans themselves and just uh, see it as a really big picture at the end of that trip. It was really valuable. And before we dive into like uh, one more wave and how you got involved in that, um, I, I, just, I thought this was important. And um, can you talk about how you got invited to the SOCOM symposium? Oh, sure. So like I told you, I just, I kind of hope that that CST um, title is something I carry for the rest of my life. So um, after I got back from Afghanistan and Iraq is when U.S. SOCOM was trying to push for the women in service, which was opening all rates and units to females. Um, so they called up all the CSTs. They sent out email and mail invites to every single CST that had ever been in the program. And it was going to be fully funded. You just had, they were going to fund you to get you down to Tampa if you wanted to be a part of it. And um, I was the only girl from my cycle, but the FST4 cycle was very heavily involved in it. So we all went down to Tampa and I mean, we were meeting General Votel. We were having discussions with him and very high leadership in SOCOM. Um, they had been putting out Rand Corporation surveys to all of the soft units, the men asking, hey, do you want women in special forces? And then they were asking us as CSTs, hey girls, do you wanna be SEALs? Do you wanna be SWIC? Do you wanna be Green Berets? So it was a very um, down, down to earth conversation with very high ranking people who were about to make a very big decision to open these ranks. And we met twice down in Tampa. And each time it was just, we got to give our perspective of what we wanted as females. We had already been hearing all the surveys and the news articles coming out about guys not wanting women and their brotherhood. And, you know, God forbid a girl gets her period on a combat mission. It's like the dumbest things that these guys were coming up as excuses and you guys are gonna change the standards. But we were there to say, no, you guys are wrong. We don't want the standards to change. We, we are women for the most part that aren't concerned right now about having babies. We're focused on our career. Um, we don't wanna cause drama with your groups. And honestly, the bottom line was none of us actually wanted to be a SEAL. None of us wanted to be Green Berets. We just wanted to continue this small unit of women that could go and support them when they needed it. We never asked to be SEALs. But now, yes, should everyone deserve an equal right to be anything they want? Of course. So I think it was um, March of 2016 that SOCOM officially had opened all combat rates and units um, across all four DOD branches to women. So it was very, it was really cool to be part of that history and to actually be asked like what we think of this. Do we wanna do this? What, what was our goal? 
Um, and, and for the most part, all of us CSTs were on the same page. That's yeah. awesome. You know, it's funny, Andy, I remember having to convince you guys that it was okay to, to be a woman and want to kill bad guys. <laughs> yeah, you, I remember yeah? that too. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was a weird conversation, Matt, to have with people. But they all thought they were bad because they wanted to um, go hunt bad guys. And they're, right? They're not, like they're mentally, just... <laughs> are we just that screwed up? No. <laughs> it was funny. Well, it was, just it was funny that the next yeah. two of my deployments, I was literally killing people on a daily basis. So I was like, maybe I am a little crazy, but it's also okay. <laughs> You fit right in here is basically right, exactly. what saying. Yes. <laughs> and um, Rob, can you talk about how um, you uh, like talk to Annie to come join one more wave? Is that, is that true? Is that how that went down? It is. Yeah, it, usually most people, I'll just reach out to them if I know them. <laughs> uh, I, I knew um, as I was getting out, I'd seen a lot of the, especially reservists come in and out and, really be disenfranchised at the end because like she mentioned, it's actually worse than she describes because you come back and we're like, well, we don't really have a job for you. You can kind of do whatever you want for two weeks. And then they're kind of like walking around lost, right? Kind of like homeless people out in the street, like wandering around. They're like, mom and dad aren't picking me up anymore. I really don't know what to do. Uh, and so they really suffer. Uh, I, I really felt bad because you'd see a lot of the men and women that reservists come back and like, oh, I'm not going to have a job on Tuesday. You guys think is anyone hiring an NSW and there'd be this terrible scramble where they're trying to like get on orders, they keep getting paid. And then, you know, no one really take care of them when it came to like mental health afterwards, right? There was no like follow on anything like you're demobbed and you're back at your job. And so like I knew what had worked for me was a lot of, you know, being out hiking or backpacking or surfing or whatever it was. And so I always suggest to other folks like, you know, go do that if that's what you're into. Uh, and then, you know, I'd stayed in contact with Annie over the last couple of years, probably you know, maybe through LinkedIn or Facebook or something. And so um, I was uh, a fan of her cruising down the Mississippi. Um, she didn't mention, but it was really cool. Like they'd go to these locks. Like, you don't think about what does a canoe do when it gets to a lock, right? So they'd like wait for ships and be hanging out while they're adjusting the water level in there. I don't know. I was totally dorking out watching them um, canoe down the Mississippi. But um, I knew she had a love for the water. I could see her with her dog you know, on a stand-up paddleboard, I think it was inflatable um, that she was using. And I was like, oh man, I, I know if I, if I reach out to her, she probably won't apply unless I bother her. So I bugged her a little bit and um, that's how it happened. You know, now she's got this crazy board with awesome flowers on it. It's one of my favorites. You talk about uh, your experience, Annie? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been paddleboarding since Hawaii, like before stand-up paddling was even cool. I remember I had this 12 foot, like 50 pound paddleboard, like so obnoxious, but I continued it on in San Diego, um, Florida. So yeah, like you said, I had the inflatable and now I had my dog. So I had this perfect excuse to get out and recreate and um, paddling from any paddle sport for me, I feel more comfortable on top of the water than in the water. I think that's just my Midwest. I wasn't raised around oceans riptides, currents. So for me to paddleboard, it's this beautiful perspective of looking down from five foot four into the water and you see all this beauty pass you and you're just in a very serene, quiet place. You generally have to paddleboard when the winds are low. So everything's quiet. You're, you're fair. You're usually out there by yourself. It, it's not a huge sport yet. So when he called me and told me, of course I was a little shy. I was like, but 
you know, you guys are more for like physical disabilities, but he was like, no, Annie, it's for PTSD, it's depression. Like this is exactly right up your alley. So I was like, you know what? You're right. And I applied. Um, I got to meet all the amazing staff. Like I remember getting this phone call with um, their graphic designer, Cheryl. And we just, I sat in the backyard talking to her for I think like an hour and a half about just my love of Hawaii. Hawaii, like when I moved there, when I lived there, it was my soul. The blue water, the green mountains, the flowers everywhere. So I said, you know, I think I want just a board covered in plumerias. I want it to be hot pink. I want it to remind me of Hawaii and I want it to make me happy. And she was like, I've got you. And over the next course of months, she sent me like um, sketches of all these different patterns. And she was like, and while we're at it, I think we should put your dog on the board. And I was like, oh my God, seriously? And I was like, yes, let's. She, I, she took a graphic that I sent her and like even specialized it to like match the white on his paw and the white on his nose. It was so much care and attention that she put into this design for me. She doesn't know me. She doesn't owe me anything. And so the whole process with One More Wave, it's just very loving. And like, you could tell it's a family. And here's Rob sending like, random videos and photos of like the process. And it was just, it, what a cool organization. Their social media is so fun to follow. You're, you know, like he said, you know you're watching people use their boards for good, for mental healing, physical healing. Like anyone that gets a board from One More Wave is happy and is doing something better for their life. No one's going backwards. We're all moving forward in this together. And um, yeah, I mean, so I mounted the board on my living room. I bought these like beautiful surfboard racks from an Etsy shop of Escondido. So it was like, oh, San Diego in San Diego. And it's on my living room. I use it all the time because it's so light. I mean, like the technology of these boards has come so far. It's perfectly designed for my dog and I to fit on. I live across the street from some mangroves, so I can literally yank it off my wall, have it on my roof and be in the water in 20 minutes. And it's a piece of art. It's on my wall and it makes me smile 20 times a day. And the organization is, it's fantastic. There's no denying that. That's awesome. And it, it's cool just like hearing you talk about it because like, you just see like the smile on your face and uh, I'm like, I can't stop smiling hearing you talk about it. So <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, we're all in this together. Yep. Um, so I think like closing thoughts, um, where can people find you guys? Or if you want to plug anything, maybe social media or maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> No, of course. Uh, I, I would not plug it so that you can as much give us money, but if you if you know somebody that, that needs some help or could gain from some outside awesome therapy, getting on the water, um, please come apply. You don't have to be an expert. I think a lot of people think um, you need to be a pro surfer or stand-up paddleboarder or body surfer to come get in the water. You don't. Uh, and you don't need to uh, think that there's a, a scoreboard. I'm sure I've talked to Annie about this. A lot of people go and they'll be on our 
social media and see Jose. He's a triple amputee and he's out there charging. You're like, man, I, he's got it way worse than me. Um, and he, he would flip you off if you said that to him, I guarantee. Um, we're all the same, just like Annie said. So please, if you, if you need some help or if you want to get in the water, uh, we're happy to help. Um, even if uh, you're not quite sure what you want to do, uh, just chat me up. I'm, 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 I'm lucky enough. I get to talk to every single person. So I'd love to come, you know, tell you about how do we do things and uh, get you in the family. So follow us at, uh, at one more wave on Instagram. Uh, one more wave.com is the website. Uh, at late night history, <laughs> Instagram. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the dude and dudette. Yeah. Well, and even like, I'm not a big, like, uh, public people following me, but, um, I've written a few articles for just mental health programs. So if I, if I was to encourage anyone to check anything out, it would be one more wave. It would be warriorexpeditions.org. Um, outdoor, uh, Outward Bound has veterans programs, fully funded, um, huts for vets, and just the VA. Like um, our, my generation is not seeking assistance from the VA. Uh, and it's really sad because they have this great program. It's called Whole Health. They focus on everything. They focus on you getting a therapist, working on your physical health, working on your sleep, and then like, you know, yoga or Tai Chi or getting out and doing outdoor therapy. So um, if I could say anything from someone my age and my generation of vets, it would be to go through the VA process, um, check out a local VFW post, check out an American Legion we need to carry on these organizations. I don't want to see them die just because the Vietnam veterans all die off. You know, like we have great modern organizations, but there are these brotherhoods that are still around. And these old guys at my VFW absolutely love when anyone under the age of 50 walks in that door and they treat us just like they do their own brothers. Um, so yeah, I would just really encourage, don't be afraid to seek out mental health and physical health programs for vets.